Hi, and thanks for tuning in to episode six of the Last Palabra podcast, my weekly attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information in and out of my head for you all to listen to. This week, we'll talk about Bruce Springsteen, British Pride and Visiting Home. First things first, though, the observant among you will realise that this podcast is uh, somewhat late. And it is, and I apologise for that. I went to England at the weekend to see my family, and I came back all coldy and fluey, and I didn't want to really record my voice. I didn't want to put you through having to listen to me all coldy and snotty and horrible. Um, I'm more or less better. but I, And I was keen to get this podcast done, and, and not fall uh, a full week behind. I also wanted to get better now as we're heading into the first of the four MotoGP rounds known as the Flyaways, which are the rounds held in other, on the other side of the world, basically, which start in Thailand this weekend, uh, then on to Malaysia, Japan and Australia. And of course, that means working weird hours, uh, getting up in the middle of the night to go to work, uh, getting up super early to go to work. Everything's backwards for a good month or so. Also, an update on the house moving. Uh, you might remember that we were buying a flat outside of Barcelona. Uh, we're still not in it, uh, despite this process going on now since July, and it was all rushed at the start, you know, now it's like, ah. However, we are a step closer, and it looks like we should, 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 should have the keys by November. As a result, a lot of our stuff is now boxed. We're also selling a bunch of stuff that we don't need, uh, a lot of stuff that we know we don't need it because we haven't used it since the last time we moved, uh, and that's the rule, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm also quite aware that I do have a tendency to accumulate stuff and I don't want to end up like the, the George Carlin sketch. Have you seen that? Where he talks about uh, your house is a, a place to keep your stuff while, while you go out and get more stuff. And sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? No room for all your stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm quite keen to kind of throw away stuff. And also just the thought of moving it gives me the jitters. So I'd rather just sell it or get rid of it than move it. Uh I will definitely tell you uh, about my trip to England because I went to England last weekend. Uh, I went with actually Patri and all of her family, uh, her parents that had never been to England before, uh, her sister, her sister's boyfriend. So we all went and stayed with my parents for the weekend and I showed them around Nottingham. First, though, I want to talk to you about last week. Uh, there was a bank holiday in Barcelona for uh, La Merced, which is observing the Roman Catholic feast day of Our Lady of Mercy. It's actually just a holiday that takes place in Barcelona, not necessarily the surrounding area, nor nor Spain, um, just in the city. Um, during the weekend and on the, the bank holiday itself, there are concerts at various points in the city, fireworks, uh, Castillers, which are like the, I think I've said that right, Castillers, the human towers. There are parades, there's all kinds of things to do. I decided to honour Our Lady of Mercy by going to the cinema. Spain. If you don't know, Blinded by the Light is a British comedy drama directed by Gurinder Chadha, uh, inspired by the life of journalist Savras Manzor and his love of everything Bruce Springsteen. Chadha is probably best known for the 2002 film Bennett Like Beckham, whilst Manzor was a Channel 4 news reporter, a Guardian contributor um, from Luton, and he's just a general Bruce Springsteen nut. He wrote... Um, for BBC Radio 4, he wrote From Luton Streets to Jersey Shores, which is about his trip to New Jersey. And he, he looked at the connections between Springsteen's New Jersey and Manzor's hometown of Luton, um, drawing you know parallels between the kind of the, the working class, the factories, 
the lack of opportunities um, that are, are were in Luton in the in the 80s, I guess. Um, I remember I read recently actually that if you were born in Luton, uh, there was a Vauxhall factory or the airport, and so it's like those are your your career options, you know. I guess that's not true anymore now. Um, Manzor also uh, published Greetings from Berry Park, which is a memoir that detailed his life growing up in Luton and the, the two impacts upon his life, which were the death of his father in 1995 and the music of Bruce Springsteen, and that's what the film Blinded by the Light is based on. It's set in Luton during the late 80s and Thatcher's, Thatcher's Britain, and it's kind of a coming-of-age story focusing on the life of 16-year-old Javed Khan and his family with uh, Pakistani immigrant fa- uh, parents. Javed feels largely out of place in working-class Britain, where he, he neither identifies as, as British nor Pakistani. He's alienated uh, by endemic racism and uh, the sort of skinhead movement of the 80s, and he finds himself as just one of of two minority students in his school. The other's a Sikh boy named Roop. Um, Javed's also facing a kind of a crisis uh, as he's having to make career choices. I don't know if you think back to being like age 16. You had to choose A-levels. You had to choose what your career was going to be. It's a lot of pressure when you're 16. Um, so the film's kind of based around that. Javed was aspiring to be a writer and his dad rather, he pursued a more, and I put this in kind of in quotes because it's how it's portrayed in the film. I think his dad even says it once. Uh, a Pakistani career such as an accountant or a lawyer. I don't want to give too much away. Uh, the film's great. Go and see it. Even if you're not a big fan of Bruce Springsteen music, I think if, like me, you're a fan of the music, it probably adds something. But if you're not a fan of it, it doesn't take anything away from the film. You know, it's kind of fun. Um, the music comes into it by Roop, the the Sikh boy that, that Javid's friends with, introduces him to the boss, uh, to which it was quite a, f- a funny moment in the film. He says, this is the boss. And Javid says, who's boss? And he says, the boss of us all. And he calls Springsteen music the direct line to all that is true in this shitty world. And I think that's that's very poignant. I think anyone that's a fan of Bruce Springsteen music and can can feel that, you know. As a result, Javed seeks solace in Bruce's music. Um, and, and haven't we all, you know, haven't we all at some point felt the, the disconnection from the world and connected to, to music? Whether it's Nirvana, whether it's... Uh, I don't know Taylor Swift whether it's it's Bruce Springsteen you know there's there's that emotional connection in music all along and when there's lyrics like the one dancing in the dark um Bruce Springsteen this is like, I get up in the evening and I got nothing to say I come home in the morning and I go to bed feeling the same way I ain't nothing but tired man I'm just tired and bored with myself like that I think those are some of the best lyrics ever written just because it's relatable you know it's we've all been there we've all been in this kind of place where it's like Nothing changes. You go out of the house, you go to work, you get home. Everything's the same. There's nothing different. And you just kind of reaching out for something to change, you know? And so we live our teenage angst, our teenage dreams, our, all of this. You know, we're thinking back to when we were 16. We live this all through Javid. And with a soundtrack of not only some fantastic music from Bruce Springsteen, some of Springsteen's greatest hits, but also a great 80s soundtrack as well. Whilst Javid and his family tackle poverty, racism and love interests, the film itself is typically British in terms of cinema. It relies very heavily on the setting, both geographically and the sort of the era, to tell the story. Um, They almost become like a metaphor in themselves, which is very common to British cinema. 
But it also cuts through the stereotypes that you might expect to have grown used to from this kind of British Pakistani cinema that we, we, we get used to in the UK, I think. Stylistically, the film uses uh, quotes and light projection and like the song lyrics in a really cool way. I enjoyed uh, how at times it almost became like a musical. Uh, but it also highlighted some of the hardest hitting and, and most powerful Springsteen lyrics, which for me is the most powerful part of his music. His lyrics are just there's something else, you know. I quite like the quote in the review by uh, no, oh, sorry, on the Rotten Tomatoes website, which which have given the film an 88 percent approval rating. So that's good in in Rotten Tomatoes terms. And it's been reviewed as uh, like a life affirming rock anthem blinded by the light hits familiar chords with confidence and flair building to a conclusion that leaves audiences cheering for an encore. And I really like that. I think that's nice. You know, there's... Yeah, that captures it for me. Uh, this adds to it as well. Anthony Ray Bench from Film Threat says, It's a feel-good movie that tackles a bunch of tough topics, from politics, race, family traditions, social frustrations, and romance, yet never feels preachy or overly cheesy. Again, that nails it for me. Like, it's not... A difficult watch it's kind of family friendly but there is racism there is a little bit of violence a little bit of social injustice a bit of poverty you know there's it's got all of that but it's also got romance it's also got the the coming of age vibe to it you know and indeed it, it does tackle these tough topics particularly on politics and race in the 1980s in parallel to this i over the past few weeks i've just finished it actually last week uh, i've been reading arcala's natives which is a great book i'd highly recommend it really really fascinating about british history in relation to class and poverty and race uh it, it tackles race in britain and it made me reflect on my feelings about britain it made me reflect on my feelings about race as well and this kind of privilege that we have as white people but then it also uh, it helped me feel kind of forgiven as well for not having recognized that privilege as much as probably we should be aware of it as we should maybe this these issues, I think, are coming to light. Uh, it's, it's all particularly relevant now, I think, as we begin the countdown to Brexit, which all go into plan, if we can call it a plan, will go ahead on October 31st. Fingers crossed. I mean, this is at the time of, of recording it, that the EU will push uh, for an extension plan because there's just a, there's a lot of things remain unresolved. Personally, I've always felt proud to be British because I think it's important to have some level of pride in where you come from. Certainly, I'm grateful. Uh, I, I consider myself lucky to have been born and raised in Britain, a country which does have lots to be proud of, a national healthcare system, a strong welfare state, a diverse and multicultural sense of, of community. Although I've never really felt the kind of nationalistic pride to be proud of Britain for being British. And I think, blinded by the light, just set a couple of years before I was born, reminding me why. And even as I say this kind of proud of Britain for being British, like, I get this kind of uh, feeling. Growing up, I always felt like I had a healthy level of scepticism. A reason to be dubious of being too proud of being British. Certainly when the World Cup was on or, you know, we'd have St. George Crosses out uh, at Cubs and Scouts each week. We'd ceremoniously raise and lower the Union Jack. But aside from that, there was always a kind of a sense of caution around flag waving. I was born in 1989, the 10th year of Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership. The same year that poll tax was introduced, that Muslims protested Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, uh, and Iran even broke off relations with the UK over Satanic Verses. 
the same year that 94 people were killed in the Hillsborough disaster, which police tried to blame the victims for, fueled by tabloid rag the sun. The same year that the European Commission accused Britain of failing to meet standards on drinking water. The same year that Channel Tunnel, British Rail, London Underground, dock workers, London ambulance crews, as well as broadcasting unions, unions were all on strike. It's also the year that BNP rioted against Muslims in Yorkshire. But 1989 is also the same year that the Berlin Wall fell. Margaret Thatcher, along with American President George Bush and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, declared the end of the Cold War after 40 years. And Band-Aids, do they know it's Christmas time, reached Christmas number one, uh, all trying to help African famine relief. By the time I was one, Salman Rushdie had a fatwa against him over the satanic verses. The UK and Argentina had restored diplomatic relations after the armed conflict over the Falkland Islands. There were riots in Brixton, one of the poorest districts of London, over the poll tax, followed by larger riots involving 200,000 protesters. Iraq hanged British journalist Farzad Bazoft for spying. BSE, mad cow disease, became a thing. An IRA bomb exploded in the London Stock Exchange. Margaret Thatcher announced her desire for a new Magna Carta to guarantee basic rights for all European citizens. And British hostages in Saddam Hussein's Iraq were paraded on TV. So it's safe to say these were turbulent times. Not only for Great Britain, but for the world. I remember hearing uh, on the news about the murder of black British teenager Stephen Lawrence in 1993. And the aftermath. I grew up watching public inquiries investigating whether it was racially motivated. And if the police failed to act because of the colour of Stephen Lawrence's skin. I remember when I was nine, a public inquiry that concluded that the force was institutionally racist. And I had to grow up with that. Knowing that the police force were, were not infallible i remember when i was 21 the retrial leading to the racist murderers being imprisoned and in 2013 when a former undercover police officer stated in an interview that at the time he had been pressured to find ways to smear and discredit the victim's family in order to mute and deter public campaigning for better police responses to the case i remember clearly age four in one of my first weeks at school sitting in a school assembly and my head teacher mrs sanchez explaining to us about the ceasefire of the IRA. I remember that again, age seven, after a violent two-year period which saw the Docklands bombings, the Manchester bombing, that another ceasefire deal had been reached. This one ultimately led to the Good Friday Agreement, which is currently under threat by Boris Johnson's Brexit. I remember in May 1997, Tony Blair being elected, and I remember joining the protests against the invasion of Iraq six years later in 2003, when Blair ignored some 2 million people in London and even more across the country and sent armed forces into Iraq based on what was a deficient case with no legal basis. Needless to say, British pride only reached so far during my years growing up, I think. I always felt like being proud of being British meant rejecting all that wasn't British. And by not British, I probably unconsciously mean not white British. I was proud to be part of a culture that wasn't just white British. I grew up in Leicester, where there is a large Hindu population. I enjoyed celebrating Diwali and seeing the lights in the city, doing paintings in school and eating traditional Hindu foods. I also remember the non-Christian children having to leave assemblies when we prayed to our Christian God. I enjoyed the school trip to the Hindu temple or Mandir, feeling lucky that I didn't just have to study about these other cultures from books, but I could actually experience them for myself and interact with people that, that had these religions, that were part of this culture. Although I do joke about us going to the inner city schools that are largely populated by children or grandchildren of Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Indian immigrants. These are fond memories of mine that rather than highlighting the differences, 
show me not only to be tolerant, but to celebrate others' religions and cultures. I even remember feeling distinctly jealous that my religion was nowhere near as exciting as theirs. These experiences, whilst probably teaching me to distinguish the differences, to highlight the differences between people, um, because I think whilst it's a good idea to learn about other cultures, it does highlight these differences, you know, and I think that can breed intolerance. But for me, it taught me that it doesn't matter. The all five-year-olds, whether white British, white European, Pakistani, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, West African, Caribbean, or otherwise, they just want to play football and draw and colour and have fun. So, when I had the suspicion that being a proud Brit, waving the Union Jag, or, or talking about the Empire, was so distinctly contrary to this multiculturalism that I enjoyed growing up, is it any surprise that I struggled to identify with it? Is it surprising that false claims about St. George or Poppy is being banned because it offends people, or that we can't call them Easter eggs because of Muslims, which it's just racists exaggerating an urban myth and trying to justify their racist colonial attitudes, they push me away of being proud of a nation. When people fly Union Jacks, hang pictures of Churchill or praise Thatcher, I, I cringe, and that's held up as British, you know? But it contradicts everything that I love about Britain. As Arkela wrote in Natives, and I quote, Discussion about race in the UK is rather fascinating, and often coloured by what he calls, what Arkela calls, a very British brand of racism. Polite denial, quiet amusement, or outright outrage that one could dare to suggest that the mother of liberty is not a total meritocracy after all. That we too, like so many less civilised nations around the world, have a caste system. People who can see so clearly the very real injustices in other nation states, or even perceive how positive aspects of British history have shaped the country current reality somehow become unable to think when the lens of examination is turned inwards. Indeed, British history is rather short-sighted. Yes, we celebrate our British side as the victors in World War II against the Nazis. We learn about our own white British royal families, the Tudors and the Stuarts, Henry VIII, and even Oliver Cromwell. But I challenge any of my peers to explain Britain's part in the slave trade, the Caribbean colonisation, or even America's war of independence. I'd even go as far as challenging them to explain our part in South African apartheid, or ask them why Australia and New Zealand, countries literally on the other side of the world, are populated with white English speakers. I'd even ask them about the joyous celebration of transferring Hong Kong back to China in 1997, something which I remember watching live on TV when I was six years old, brimming with British pride. Quoting Arcala again, Britain has two competing traditions, one rooted in ideas of freedom, equality and democracy, and another that sees these words as mere rhetoric to be trotted out at will and violated whenever it serves the Machiavellian purposes of the power preservation. This is how the UK can have the largest of demonstrations against the invasion of Iraq and yet still have a government that entirely ignored its population and an issue with such global shifting implications. I remember in 2007, Tony Blair talking about black on black crime and wondering why indeed the colour of their skin came into the equation at all. Yet a large amount of the country, with the help from the likes of Daily Mail, bought into it and the blackness and crime collocation was reinforced. This wasn't and isn't just a perceptual thing though. I remember many of my black friends and Asian friends being more likely to be stopped and searched than I was, by laws that empowered police to be able to stop anyone, ask them what they're doing, where they're going, and force them to empty their pockets, indiscriminately, although there's definitely some level of discrimination. 
black teenage boys and young men are more likely to be sent to prison and more likely to get sentences for homicide and other crimes. Disproportionately, many black people are in prison, as MP David Lamy found in his 2017 review of the criminal justice system, and I quote, Some of the difference in sentencing is the result of a trust deficit. Many black, Asian and minority ethnic defendants simply still do not believe that the justice system will deliver less punitive treatment if they plead guilty. It's vital that all parts of the criminal justice system work hard to address these discrepancies, so that the same crime leads to the same sentence, regardless of ethnicity. I think racist tensions have always lurked beneath the surface in Britain, um, based on centuries you know people look back and they're like oh yes britain was once a proud nation we ruled a large amount of the world and you have to look at that and think like well how did that happen you know uh, are we are we proud of oppressing people um i think it rises from there even in recent decades it's all there it's it's lurked beneath the surface and i think it's it's come further and further boiling up with brexit from the go-home vans circulating the streets of london in 2013 to the recent attempts to deport the Windrush generation of Caribbean migrants who were among almost 600,000 Commonwealth migrants that arrived in the United Kingdom before 1971. People that have lived and worked in Britain for most of their lives and have legal right to British citizenship. But sometimes they haven't got the documentation to prove this. And so the Conservative government was trying to deport them. Looking at Nigel Farage and his Brexit, his, his Brexit campaign, standing in front of that infamous Breaking Point poster, the photograph used was of migrants crossing the Croatia-Slovenia border in 2015. All of this harks back to 1964. The Smetherwick Conservative election campaign poster said, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. Or even Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech in 1968. Never mind that Britain has a German royal family, a Norman ruling elite, a Greek patron saint, a Roman Middle Eastern religion, Indian food as its national cuisine, an Arabic Indian numeral system, a Latin alphabet, an identity predicated on a multi-ethnic globe-spanning empire. Fuck the bloody foreigners, says Arkela. And so, reflecting on this brief and rather recent history of Britain, I wrestled with what it is that I am proud of. Sadly, certainly lately, it seems there's little to cheer about, as the grotesque and racist leave campaign headed by Prime Minister Boris looks set to crash Britain out of Europe, making the country a global laughingstock. But it's the multicultural, tolerant view of the world, the opportunities that I had to meet remarkable people, without concerning myself with their religion, the colour of their skin, or their, or their grandparents, or even great-grandparents' birth certificates, that I'm most proud of. My opportunity to experience that. And it's certainly what brought me to where I am today. It allowed me to integrate and learn about other cultures. With this mix of uh, fear, I guess, of pre-Brexit racial prejudice and multicultural British pride in mind, I flew with my wife, my Spanish wife, and her non-English speaking family to England to visit my mum and dad um, and to show them around where I'm from. It was great. Uh, the, the trip was great. I've had my, my rant about racism in England. Um, we flew into Luton. We hired a nine-seater van and drove the two hours up the M1. Uh, commenting on the, the M1 from Luton and, and Blinded by the Light film and all of that. It was obviously great to see my parents, uh, and it was really cool to see Nottingham, the city that I essentially grew up in from the age of 8 to 19. I saw it from a, a fresh perspective. I saw it from the view of tourists and aliens to the country. And we covered a lot of ground in Nottingham. 
first passing through my parents' sewing shop before stopping off at the Contemporary Art Gallery, going to the Malt Cross for lunch and stopping at plenty of shops along the way. I'd recommend it. Like, visit Nottingham. <laughs> There's loads to see and do. We also stopped off at Nottingham Castle and, of course, the Robin Hood statue, and we drove to Woolerton Park to see Wayne Manor, a.k.a. Woolerton Hall, as well as of the deer that are there. Um, we went for dinner at the Hand and Heart, which is a very traditional pub uh, built into the caves with typical food like fish and chips, steak and ale pie, lamb shank, and plenty of traditional British ales as well. Probably one of the things I miss most about England, if I'm honest, aside from the people, of course. I also showed my new family where I went to school, where I hung out, uh, and where I grew up, and the life I, I had in those important teenage years. I was also able to share plenty of the multi multicultural aspects of Britain that I've grown to love, such as the international food market in, in Old Market Square. Although my mother-in-law was quite shocked to find that in England they put chorizo in the paella. Uh, and she was even more shocked to find out that the lady running the faux Spanish food stand also spoke Spanish and shouted in Spanish, uh, that's what the people in England want. It was truly wonderful weekend. And I'm so pleased to have been able to share it with uh, some brilliant people. My parents are both learning Spanish and they did a great job caring for and interacting with their consuegros, uh, a word that doesn't, we don't have it in English. It means the, your son or daughter's in, your son or daughter-in-law's parents, consuegros. What I also learned is that to step back from your own culture or society and compare it to another is a great way of, of reclaiming your roots and some pride in your belonging. Since the Brexit referendum, I've struggled to identify as British. I feel like I can't identify with 52 point whatever percent it was to the people, 52% of the people. However, it's now having gone back and interacted with the real variety of people uh, that are in, there are in Britain, hearing different accents from both parts of Britain and across Europe. And it reminded me that those 52% of people, the politicians that are standing there saying, we can't surrender to Europe, they don't represent the British people. They don't represent me. They don't represent everything I grew to love about Britain any more than the, the flag-waving BMP rioters of the 80s or the IRA who blew up the Manchester Arndale Centre. They don't represent the Irish. But actually, it's this melting pot that we have cultivated in Britain that was born out of oppression and and despite the hate and racism and the segregation and the victimisation, that there are people from a wide variety of backgrounds that not only coexist but in large aspects nowadays thrive together and make Britain what it is. Could it be better? 100%. Should it be? Yes. But it's in these battles for racial justice that we have to identify and speak out and not let these injustices define us, nor Britain. To quote Arcala for the final time, this book really got to me, you should, I'd recommend it. As much as a tendency to dominate, divide and brutalise has been a seeming constant for the past few millennia at least, so too has the tendency of sharing and cooperation, of rebellion against dominant powers and attempts to create a more just order. This opportunity to share and cooperate, communicate and participate isn't going anywhere, even if the elite British ruling class want to force Brexit upon us, to try to indoctrinate us with hate via the right-wing media, the press. The world is better connected than ever, and thanks to social media and the internet. The way we tackle racism prejudice in 2019 and beyond, is to keep communicating, keep sharing experiences of how multiculturalism has enriched our lives, and keep living as freely and as truthfully and as tolerantly as we can. We must, as I said before, reflect on our own surroundings and our own culture, 
and make sure everyone has the chance they deserve. Identify with what you will, but don't let that define you. And certainly don't let it put up walls. Taking a step back from your culture, looking at it through new eyes, shouting about it, helps you to better appreciate it. I certainly feel prouder about being British than I did this time last week. You can probably hear my cat meowing in the background. Um, I'm going to wrap it up there for, for this week. I will have another episode on Monday. I'll do my best to get it done for then. Like I say, I've got a crazy weekend of MotoGP stuff coming up, uh, starting at like five in the morning each day. Um, but hey, thanks for listening to what has been a bit of a ranty episode six. Um, as always, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, reach out, do the follow, like, share thing. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also send me an email, uh, thelastpalabra at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from you. Um, yeah, thanks for listening and, and see you next time.